All right, I'd like to welcome this morning uh, Pastor Eric Friel. He's a familiar face by now. Um, I just want to say I know it's a huge blessing to our church and my father in particular to know, you know, to have someone you can trust to faithfully um, execute the word of God. Um, but we don't take that for granted, so um, we appreciate that, Brother Eric. And if you would come now and give us the word of the Lord. We do not deserve, though we often uh, forsake it, that we have your word, the revelation of yourself to us, that we might know you, that we might fellowship with you, that we might have communion with Almighty God who has created the heavens and the earth who spoke them into existence. Even the thought that you would want to commune with us is overwhelming. And yet you tell us in your word that you delight in us and you delight in our prayers and you delight in what we have gathered together to do today, to worship your holy name. We thank you for these things. We pray that by your Spirit's power they would grip our hearts and minds in such a way that we would be amazed at them. We ask now as we come to your word, receiving it, Father, as God breathed, as your word, showing us you in order that we might delight in you and also showing us how we are to live, that we might live life as it was intended. So we ask for your Spirit's help. We ask that he would be poured out, that you would look upon your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has died for us, and that you would grant the benefit, one of the benefits of his death, the pouring out of the Spirit of God, and that even now we would delight in your word because your Spirit has helped us. We ask these things in the glorious name of Christ. Amen. Let me ask you this morning to search your heart for a moment, actually to search your heart for the whole sermon, but let me ask you, Nail down three things that you would consider central in your life. Three things you would consider central in your life. Now, let me put a qualifier up here real quick. Because we have the centrality of the church there. You might be tempted to say, well, I better put in the centrality of the church. But don't do it if it's not really there. So, Three things that are central in your life. And usually the things that are central in our lives are easy enough to identify that we can do it like that so we can move on. Let me ask you then. Was the church one of those three things? Was the church of our Lord Jesus Christ one of those things? As radical as it might seem, it needs to be. It needs to be central in our lives. Because as we said before, it is central in the plan, in the redemptive purpose, in the heart, in the mind of the God that we serve. It's not a byproduct. There's a, a form of theology that was pretty dominant in the 1900s that looked at the church as kind of a, an alternate plan. See, the, the plan with the Jews had failed, so God comes to a parenthetic 
of time in his plan, and it's the church, the age of the church. That is not true to the scriptures. The church is planned and purposed. It is central in the mind and heart and will of God. I would be so bold as to say before you that it is as central to God the Father as Jesus Christ is central to God the Father. Now that sounds radical, doesn't it? But that's the biblical argument. That's the biblical presentation. Now y'all, if it is that way with God, it must be that way with us as well. Now, last time I was here, we looked at the first three arguments for the centrality of the church in God's eternal program, God's eternal plan, with the implication that if it is central in His mind, heart, plan, purpose, it must be for us. So this morning we want to look at the second three. As I was driving here this morning, I was thinking of another. It would be the tenth reason for the centrality of the church in God's mind and plan and thus in us. And, and, and that reason is what we're doing right here. We are not going to church. We haven't come to church, have we? That's, that's bad use of the language. The church has gathered to worship. We have come together to worship. Now, for the corporate worship of God, corporate, corporate worship of God, the scriptures declare that it is the church where the corporate worship of God takes place. This is where it is to happen. But we won't look at that argument today. Let's go to chapter 4 of Ephesians. We'll take an argument from this chapter. Then we'll take an argument from chapter 5 and an argument from chapter 6. And I'm sure you remember that we said it's not just the, the whole nine arguments for the centrality of the church. It's that every single argument is conclusive in and of itself. Every single one that we've looked at, the three that we've looked at, is conclusive. And the three that we look at today are conclusive. They mean the church is central in God's purposes, and thus in God's desires, and we might say in God's delights, and God's pleasures, and the church must be central to us. So here is the fourth argument, or the first one today, and on the sheet that you've uh, picked up in the back, we would word it this way, uh, the blank there is worthy, worthy. The church is central in helping Christians, in equipping Christians to live a life worthy of the Lord. Let me put it in the negative. There's no one in here, no one that has ever existed, who can walk a worthy walk apart from the church of Jesus Christ. Now that's a bold claim, isn't it? We have to argue it from this context. So let's dig in, and we're going to cover about 16 verses, but we're just flying over. We'll just pick up the argument, we'll look at some of the specifics, and we'll fly over it. So notice what Paul says here. I'm begging you. Now this, this Paul, as a prisoner of the Lord, when he says as the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm begging you, you know what he means here? He means, yes, he is begging, but he's also commanding us. <laughs> he's saying, don't go past this. I'm begging you to do it, but do this. And here's what we are to do. We are to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Now hone in on that calling. That calling is a special word. It's the Greek word kaleo. It's the root of the word church, ekklesia, ek kaleo, those who have been called out. Called is too weak of a word in our day. It seems uh, like our cell phone. Oh, God picked up his cell phone and he called us. He wanted to chat. That's not what it means. The thrust of this calling is this. It is a summons. It's a summons. 
It's not even a summons like our court summons. My wife has to do jury duty um, next week, I believe. She's been summoned to church duty. Well, she can run the other way. She may have to pay a price for it, but she can run the other way. This is a calling, a summons, that we term effectual. It carries out the desired effect. In other words, when God sends the Holy Spirit to summon an individual to him, that person comes. It comes because the Spirit has done a work in their heart, and their heart has changed. He has made them willing in the day of salvation, using Old Testament terminology. And so that person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the calling that Paul is talking about here. That's the calling of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For those who love God, all things work together according to his purpose. I'm sorry, work together for good to those who are called, who are summoned according to his purpose. So that's the calling that Paul's talking about here. And he has explained in the first chapter that this is one of the great benefits of Christianity. Chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings. And then in, chapter, in verse 4, he says, As he has called us in him as he has summoned us. The first blessing that Paul says, praise God's name for, is this. He has summoned you to himself. And that's the calling that Paul's working on here. And he says, based upon that calling, here's what I'm now calling you to. And realize that here in the book of Ephesians is the transitional point. Chapters 1 through 3, very heavy doctrinal explanation of what God has been doing. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, Christian, get with it. That's what he's saying. Now live this way. In fact, notice, live worthy of the calling. Hone in on that word worthy. That's what we're called to. To have a worthy walk. Now, <coughs> This is a beautiful word, beautiful idea. It's the idea of balance. The word that Paul brings out here is a word that means balance. He says, live a balanced life. That's what you're called to, live a balanced life. Now we pause and we think about that in our modern time. What does that mean? Well, it means... Um, We'll have a, a balanced diet, have a balanced workout plan, have a balance between your work and your play. <clears throat> balance that out. That is not what Paul means here. Bundle that up, chunk it out. Now, that may be important psychologically and all, but that's not what Paul means here in this text. By a balanced life, he's saying this, I have taught you three chapters of the being of God, of the Trinity, of the work of God in salvation. Now your life needs to be balanced with that. And I say, holy smokes. How can my life be balanced with what he has just explained in those three chapters? I hope you say the same thing. How is this possible? The, the great and glorious work of God in Jesus Christ now my life is to be lived in a manner that balances with that. Whew. That's rather heavy, isn't it? Just, just three examples of the weight of what he's talking about. These were the first three points in the centrality of the church. Here's what he's saying. Worthy, balance your life with this. First of all is this. He gave the one who he appointed as the head of the universe. Remember that in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 22 and 23? He has, he's exalted Christ to the head of the universe. He rules all principality and power. He is the governor of the universe, the king. And he's given him to the church. Now he says, Christian, your life needs to be lived in balance with that. It's, it's odd in our day, isn't it? I find it odd that we, 
because we're Americans, I think, and because of the great push to be an autonomous individual, I'm a me and nobody can tell me anything, really. <laughs> right? Nobody can tell me anything because I'm me. Well, that's, a, that's an errant view. All through the New Testament, Paul is saying, and Peter is saying, and the other writers are saying, and, and Jesus Christ himself says, live this way, don't live this way. Live like this, don't live like this. And the modern American response to that would be, you can't tell me what to do, right? He can tell us what to do. Yes. Yeah, he can. But let's go beyond that. If your heart is a Christian heart, renewed by the Holy Spirit, that you have a love for Jesus Christ, you don't recoil at that. You say, Lord, teach me how to live that I might be pleasing to you. Isn't that what David does at the end of Psalm 19? Oh, Lord, let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Tell me how to live this way. Psalm 139, he begins with God has searched him. He ends it by saying, oh, God, search me again and see if there's an evil way in me. Tell me how to live this life while pleasing to you. Christ is the exalted one. And Paul says, okay, live your life in balance with him. Do you remember the second argument, chapter 2? The church is the dwelling place of God by his spirit. It is a spiritual temple. Now, in all these arguments that focus on the church, God doesn't say that of anything else. Christ Jesus is not the head of any other organization. He's the king of the universe but he's given his head to the church. There is no other organization on the face of the earth that is the dwelling place of God by his spirit. It is the church. And so Paul says, in light of the fact that this church, this church, you together as a body of Christ, me here with you today, we are to live a life worthy of the fact that you are the dwelling place of God in his spirit. I fear all too often that the Jews had a higher value on their temple than we have on the church of Jesus Christ. And we've communicated that low value to the world at times. The third thing that we've looked at that we are to live um, in balance with is in chapter 3. And since our Bibles are right there, look back at this. These are just stunning verses. Verse 10 of chapter 3. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. You see what Paul says there? That the great wisdom of God that he has been explaining through three chapters, he says, now God wants to teach this wisdom to principalities and powers. He wants to teach it worldwide, and he's chosen a methodology to do that. And Paul says, here's the methodology. It's you. It's the church. Remember, the church is, is the whiteboard. The church is the computer board back here. And God is teaching to principalities and powers his manifold wisdom. And y'all, it's the church and nothing else. And we are to live a life worthy of that. Live a life worthy of that. Are you seeking to do that? Live a life, we'll put it this way, life worthy of the gospel. It's not worthy to earn it. It's worthy in response to it. Okay, so we come to this worthy, and Paul helps us understand it a little bit here. Paul, give me details. What do you mean a worthy walk? Well, look at verse 2. With all humility, most of us in here can say, oh, yeah, check that one off, I got that. Well, I'd say most of you maybe, I can't. All humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, surely somebody in here is like me. I feel sorry for you. But you read that and you get kind of discouraged, don't you? 
You think, well, I, I want to live for Christ, but hold it. I don't live in all humility. I don't live in all gentleness. I don't live with all patience. I don't live bearing with others in love as well as I should. And I don't make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And I want to say to Paul, how? How can I live like that? I mean, these are, you know, we can gloss over this. We can fly by. It's, oh, yeah, check those off the list. I got them. Humility, patience, gentleness, that's me. But then we have to come back to reality, don't we? Yeah. And we say, I desire that. But how in the world am I going to live like that? And Paul continues the text and he says, well, I'm going to help you. God's going to help you. He's given gifts to help you to that purpose. Look down at verse 11. Some of these verses we're going over, it's not that they're unimportant, it's that we're on a time frame. So look at verse 11. And he himself, stop there for a moment. He himself, what's the function of that himself, re reflexive pronoun? The only emphasis of that, of, of purpose of that himself, is to bring emphasis. Paul wants us to get it. It's kind of like he's, he's slapping us. Wake up here. It's he himself, Christ Jesus himself did this. And we're to feel the impact of that. Christ did this. What did he do, Paul? <clears throat> he gave some as apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are gifts given to the church. Christ, the, the great giver of gifts, he gives to the church the gifts necessary for you and I to mature in Jesus Christ. You know why this is the centrality of the church? He does not give those gifts to other organizations. He gives these gifts to the church. And he gives them to the church so that you and I might walk a worthy walk. Isn't it significant? I mean, how significant is it? He gives pastors and teachers, and you know that the structure of the text there is, is kind of difficult. Is it pastor-teacher combined? Is it one person he's talking about? Or is he talking about pastors-teachers, the teachers of the church? There might be that since the teachers of the church primarily are pastors, that he's talking about the pastor in the role as teacher. Think about this now. This is something lost, nearly lost in American Christianity. The pastor of a church, the pastors of a church are given as a gift from God for you and I to grow up, to mature in Christ. I have a journal. Is this being telecast or anything? I have a journal in which I've written of pastors who've gone through situations where they've just had the daylights beat. Most of them on this list have lost their churches. They've been run out of their churches. It's a, it's a big journal. My son brought, bought it for me from New Zealand. It's a whole page of pastors who have been crushed, sometimes by other pastors, sometimes by their congregation. That's a sad thing in our culture. It's a sad thing. There's a, there's a cry for pastors right now. There's, there's one denomination that's got a goal of planting 1,000 churches over the next couple of years. They don't know where the pastors are going to come from. Even the, the numbers in the seminaries for men training for the pastoral ministry has declined drastically. That, sh that should be alarming to us in, uh, in our time especially in light of a passage like this. What, what's your view of your pastor? God says, inspired, authoritative word. This word is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. And he says, as much as it says in your Christian, God loves you and he sacrificed his son for you, as much as it says that, it says this right here. I have given you a pastor as a gift from Jesus Christ. And that gift is to help you walk a worthy walk. 
Now, as he continues, look how he describes this worthy walk. Go down to verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's, in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Do you see what he lays out here as the goal? Maturity as a Christian. I've given these gifts to you, and they are here to do the work of the ministry. Uh, look at verse 12. The equipping of the saints. Your pastor is here for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, till we all become mature. I fear that the number of Christians who have maturity in Christ as a goal is all too small. I don't know how small it is, but I fear it's all too small. How does maturity in Christ relate to success in business, uh, success in home life, success in entertainment life? Maturity in Christ. How do they relate? And it's so significant that Paul, after he gives those three chapters on deep theology, being and the work of God, he immediately turns to life in the church. He does the same thing in Romans. He gives 11 chapters of doctrinal explanation of the gospel and when he comes to the application of that gospel in chapter 12, he says, therefore, I beseech you, give your bodies a living sacrifice. Be transformed in the way that you think. And then you know in verse 3 where he turns? Life in the church. He goes right directly to life in the church. We as Christians in America, we care about right here first. Paul cares about the church. Now look at this as we wrap up this point. Look at verse 14. Well, I'm sorry, look, look back at verse 13. Okay, so this maturity, what does it look like? You see what he said there? The fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. Oh, I want to say that. Paul, your standard is way too high. It's way too high for Eric Friel, I know that. And Paul would say, no, it's not. This is the standard. Your maturity should reflect the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a weighty responsibility, isn't it? But let's flip that. Think of this. This is what God has called us to. He's equipping us for it. He's transforming us. Romans chapter 8, he has predestined us to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's not with a snap of his finger a lot of it's through the functioning of the church to get us to conform that way. If you are going to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, you've got to have the church. You have to have the church. Not because I say so, because God says so. Look how he continues this in verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us, notice the plurality, the plurality, let us as a church grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, notice this, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building up itself in love to the proper working of each individual. So do you see part of your responsibility? It's to help everybody else in here conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, let's let that sink in just a bit. And I challenge you, read the text. Pour over it. If I'm wrong here, please take me out to lunch and buy me a really good lunch and correct me. <laughs> we are to grow to maturity in Christ in part to help others grow to maturity in Christ.
And I think at times, boy, I know some Christians, they have not helped me grow to maturity in Christ at all. And then I look in the mirror and I wonder, how do I impact others? Do I help them grow to maturity in Christ? Or do I stagnate their growth? Well, I hope you're convinced of the centrality of the church. These gifts necessary for growing to maturity in Christ, they ain't given to the golf course. They're not given to any other club that you may be part of. Though the, the dogs destroyed Kentucky last night, at least I think they did. I went to bed. It, it wasn't a game after the first quarter. God didn't give those gifts to the Georgia Bulldogs or whoever your favorite team is. He didn't give those gifts to the United States government. He gave those gifts to the church. How our view of the church ought to just skyrocket. Next argument. Fifth argument. And this is conclusive in and of itself as well. The church is central because Christ died for the church. Now, on your sheet, it's so that we may know the depth of his death. Know the depth of his death. Part of knowing the depth of the death of Jesus Christ is knowing for whom he died. He died for the church. I challenge you in your own personal study. Look for references in the scriptures of Christ's sacrifice for an individual. Now we know to have the church had to die for individuals. But the New Testament emphasis is this. It's the collective body of the church. He died for his people. He died for the elect. He died for the chosen. He died for the body. Overwhelmingly in scripture. And that's what we have right here. Christ died for the church. Look with me at verse 25 and 26. Before we read those, do you recall what this passage is about? It's about marriage, right? It's about the, the wife's submission, the husband's love. It's interesting, though. Drop down to verse 29 for a minute. Well, go down to, um, go down to verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. What is this passage really about? about Christ and the church. And so now let's go back to verse, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor and without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So now, let me go back to a point I've, I'm, I've been driving in for all these points. He says this of the church. It's not said of any other organization. Christ did not die for any other organization. We might want to, if you love church history, and if you're patriotic, and if you love this country, you may want to say, well, Christ died for the United States. No, he didn't die to redeem the United States. It may be that the United States goes the way of other countries. We get destroy ourselves, and get taken over. He died for the church, which will never be destroyed and will never be taken over. Christ died for the church. Now, as you look at these verses, 25 and 26, and we bleed down into 27, there are five verbs a collection of beautiful verbs that do this. We'll look at them in a moment. But, but here's the vastness of Christ's love for the church. The verbs take place from eternity past through time, space, reality to eternity future. So vast is the love of Christ for the church. Eternity past to eternity future. So look at verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved. That love does not stop at with a focus on his sacrifice. It precedes that. Y'all, why did Christ give himself for the church? 
because he had an existing love for the church. Because in eternity past, in the eternal decrees of God, Christ agreed with the Father, I will die for the church. I will save my people. It goes to eternity past. And we can individualize this. Christian, Christ loved you in eternity past. Before you physically existed, his love was set upon you. Continue to see what it says here. He died for the church. He gave himself. Again, the reflexive pronoun, himself. You remember when John Piper's, uh, when the movie came out, um, The Passion? Then there was a question that uh, was debated around the church. Well, well, who really did kill Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that is very simple. God the Father killed his son because his son gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Now, we, we've heard that before, right? That's kind of old stuff. But let me ask you this. Would you give yourself for somebody's sins? Would you, would you step in and say, oh, kill me, put me on that cross. I'll die for that person. Let them go free. Now let's take it even further. Imagine that you were perfect in every respect of your being. And this person was imperfect in every respect of their being, in their mind in their heart, in their will, in their conscience, in their body. Unholy in every respect of their being. Now, would you die for that person? Jesus Christ gave himself. He wasn't forced. He gave himself. Who did he give himself for? Church. Church. That terminology is in here for a reason. Paul wants us to think very highly of the church of Jesus Christ. He wants us to think so highly of it that we are dedicated to its internal well-being and its external expansion, both of this church and other churches. Look, continue the verbs here. He loved the church and gave himself, gave himself for her. Why? To make her holy. His purpose, make her holy so that she can walk a worthy walk. Cleansing her, washing her clean. Why did he do that? Look at verse 27. To present the church to himself in splendor. He wants a church full of splendor. Reflecting his holy splendor itself. <clears throat> Well, there's so much more that can be said about that, but our purpose here is to, to use it to prove the point that the church is central in God's heart, mind, purpose, desires, pleasure. Notice in, um, in verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Christ cares for the church and provides for the church. It must be central in our lives as well. Let's go to the final point this morning, which comes from chapter 6. Chapter 6. So can you rehearse the five points that we've looked at so far? I put the, uh, the pressure on my wife this morning. She's heard this series before. I said, okay, give me, the, give me the five points. Give me the nine points. I won't tell you how she did. Chapter 6. Do you need the church? Look at verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by the vastness of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, 
against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God. Stop right there for a moment. The church is central, it must be central in our lives, third point on that outline, in order for us to wage spiritual warfare. Now we know this, don't we? We know the world mocks this. The world mocks you Christians. You believe in a devil. You believe in, ooh, these little demons that are going to get you. And you believe in all this spiritual stuff. They mock it. It's real. Amen. It's real. If you would cross-reference this with Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, there's a big struggle in heaven and Satan is cast out. And we rejoice about that. But the text continues and says, now he's walking the earth and he's raging. He's not just a little ticked off. He's not just a little upset. Now, oh, shoot. He got kicked out of heaven. He's raging. He's furious. We can't really imagine it because we, we can't imagine a being as powerful as Satan is. Exceedingly great power. Different times throughout the scriptures we're told the world, well, 1 John chapter 5, the world is under the sway of the evil one. The people in China, they're under the sway of the evil one. The Eskimos, they're under the sway of the evil one. Those in Argentina, think about that. The entire world, not just Macon, Georgia, not just the Lake Wildwood area, the entire world under the sway of the evil one. He's powerful. And he's real. And in that passage in Revelation 12, he's raging, it says, against the people of God, against the people of Christ. Are you one of Christ's people? Satan wants to crush you. You know why he's after you? He can't get to the Christ. He can't do it to the Christ, so he comes after us. It's biblical teaching. So what do we have here? We have this great battle, this great spiritual warfare we're in. If, if, you, if you yawn, not because you're tired, but if you yawn with a, oh, the spiritual warfare stuff again, then I would argue Satan has you. <laughs> if you laugh at that, uh, Satan's got you. He's got you right where he wants you. Listen to this, what uh, John Stott says. I know reading from the pulpit is not a good thing, but let's lock in on it. The abrupt transition from the peaceful homes, chapter 5, and the healthful days of the previous paragraph to the hideous malice of devilish plots. Now, Stott's putting this in the strong terminology for a reason. The hideous malice of devilish plots in this section causes us a painful shock but an essential one. It, it's kind of like Paul's throwing cold water in our face to wake us up. He's talked about, oh, this beautiful home where a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, and, and the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. He takes that water and throws it right in our face and says, but listen, there's a spiritual warfare going on. And I think part of it is that spiritual warfare, he wants to destroy those homes. Satan wants to destroy our homes. As he continues here, we all wish we could spend our lives in undisturbed tranquility among our loved ones at home and in the fellowship of God's people. But the way of the escapist has been effectively blocked. Beware, if you're an escapist, that road is blocked. <laughs> it may be okay for a while. There's a roadblock. Christians have to face the prospect of conflict with God's enemies and with theirs. We need to accept the implications of this concluding passage of Paul's letter. It is stirring us, I'm sorry, it is a stirring call to battle. Do you hear the bugle and the trumpet? Are you being roused? We are being stimulated. We are being set upon our feet. We are told to be men. The whole tone is martial. It is manly. It is strong. <coughs> Moreover, 
There will be no cessation of hostilities, not even a temporary truce or ceasefire until the end of life or history when peace of heaven is obtained. It seems probable that Paul implies by this finally, notice how it starts, finally, brethren, for the better manuscripts have an expression which should be translated not finally, introducing his conclusion, but henceforward. Henceforward in your life, Christian, have the full armor of God on because you are in a, take this properly, hellish battle. Be equipped for it. Notice how he starts, though. Henceforth. Be strengthened in the Lord's might. In other words, you're going into this battle. God will strengthen you, but he does put requirements on you. He just doesn't zap you and strengthen you. He says this, put the armor on. Put the armor on. The panoply of the, of the Roman soldier. And yes, these pieces in the armor all are referenced in the Old Testament as well. Notice what he says in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand. Now, y'all, what if you don't put that armor on? What's the implication here? You're, you're going to fall. That fall is not just trip on a stone and fall. That fall is get one of the fiery darts of the evil one right through the heart. Put the armor on. We've got to stop being in our country sleepy-headed Christians. Notice verse 12. I'm sorry, against the schemes of the devil. Just, just one sentence. I thought this was excellent. You know, in, in uh, some of the versions, it says the wiles of the devil, and, and Stott points out, that's too cute of a word. <laughs> the wily coyote, that's too cute of a word. He says, um, instead, the stratagems of the devil would give the required combination of tactical shrewdness an ingenious deception. Now take those words and apply them to yourself. Christian, the devil is coming after you with tactical shrewdness and ingenious deception. Tactical shrewdness and ingenious deception. Beware of this little thing right here. It's not evil in and of itself, is it? We've got to know this, though. Satan is after us. Yes. Now, Paul's talking to the church here. I'm, I'm going to draw towards a conclusion with this illustration. Paul is in, in a Roman um, a culture. When he speaks militaristically, what does he have in mind? He's got the Roman armies in mind. And when he talks of the church, every single person, every single person in this church needs to put this armor of God on because we fight like a Roman legion. The legionaries were very highly trained. They locked themselves into formation. The front row had a certain length of spear and they had a big shield. The next row had a spear that was at the length that would end with the first spear. And I believe they had a third row with a longer spear that would reach out there as well. There was a wall of spears. That's the church. Satan, you coming after this church? You got a wall of spears right there. Try to penetrate it. But let's imagine. This soldier falls. He's not prepared. This soldier falls. He's not prepared. This one turns and runs. Doesn't have the guts to fight. Then that legion is in big trouble. In fact, you know where the idea of decimate comes from? It's from the Roman legions. If they had a legion where some of them turned and ran and they didn't fight like they should, what the Romans would do is this. They would line that legion up and every tenth person decimate would be put to death. You didn't have very many Roman soldiers turning and running in war. Yeah. Y'all, we're in a much more severe war than if we had guns or spears, or bows and arrows, whatever the, the weaponry. We're, we're fighting somebody physical. The scriptures teach that we're in a much more severe war than that. 
We're fighting the evil one. And we must fight as a church. You have an obligation to every other person in here. Christ gives you an obligation to every other person in here. We got to overcome this ridiculous American individuality. I'm an individual Christian by myself and nothing else matters. Bull. <laughs> it does matter because Christ says it does. The church is central to our existence with one another to fight in this great battle. Let me wrap up. I know I'm over just um, four points of application if I can find my last. Now, I'm just going to mention these. I'm not going to flesh through them. <coughs> Might be that the Lord doesn't want me to mention them. Okay. Four things. How do we make the church central in our lives? How do we make the church central in our lives? The first thing is this. Grow in a biblical view of the church. Don't accept the world's view of the church. Don't accept a low view of the church in our time. Grow in a biblical view of the church. Secondly, Grow in your love for the church. How do you do that? Well, determine this. Determine that you are going to love the church. And then grow in that love. Thirdly, grow in your understanding of the church. Not just a biblical view, but in the understanding of the functioning of the church and so on and so forth. And then fourthly, do this. Grow in your commitment to the church. Grow in your commitment to the church. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is central in your purposes and so central that you have sacrificed your only begotten son for the good of the church, for its redemption. We thank you that you have equipped the church with apostles and prophets and pastors, teachers, for the building up of the saints. Thank you for these gracious gifts we thank you, O Lord, that Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ has died for the church and gives us a pattern on how we are to live in the family. We thank you, Father, that the church fights together in a spiritual warfare. Lord, make us good, strong warriors. Make us fit for the battle. May we, may this church deal a devastating blow to the powers of darkness, to the evil one himself, by their godly living and by their love for one another and by their worship. Bless us in these things, we ask in the glorious name of Christ. Amen. Well, I thank you for that word, Pastor Eric. Um, boy, I think we could all take a lot away from that. Um, speaking of which, it is recorded, and I would encourage you to go to our podcast and listen to that again. Um, throughout this week because um, I know personally I don't have a sensual enough view of the church in my life and I think we can all point something out in there um, 